All right, Psalm 77, as we've already read. You can go ahead and turn there. We'll be referencing that a little bit later. Perhaps when you were a child, you read the fanciful and terrifying book, Where the Wild Things Are. You can probably picture the cover in your mind. The book sold more than 20 million copies and now has a movie adaptation, which follows pretty closely along with the book, but of course made a few changes. The story is of a boy named Max who feels neglected by his parents. And so he escapes in his imagination to a fantastical world of hairy, monstrous creatures, the wild things. And the wild things, of course, threaten to devour him. And so Max pretends wisely, I think, uh, pretends to possess magical powers and sets himself up as the king over, over the wild, wild things. And he manages them and, and convinces them to make them, to make him their king. Now, the book doesn't include this plot twist, but, but the movie includes, right? I mean, the book's only 300 words, but the movie includes, uh, includes a little bit of twist, right? In order to become king, Max had to do a little politicking, right? He had to, he had to work the crowds, and so he fakes some miracles to leave the wild things in awe of them. But, like politicians, he also makes these incredible extravagant promises of a better world. The animals believe him. And at one point, uh, they actually come to believe that Max has been sent to abolish suffering in the world. With Max on the throne, he is sure to establish permanent peace and happiness. And at least that's what he's promised. And so eventually, they go up to him and they ask him, Max, King Max, Will you keep out all the sadness? Continuing his play acting, his role as king and his miracle worker, Max makes this bold assertion. He says, yes, I have a sadness shield. And this sadness shield keeps out all the sadness and it's big enough for all of us. Don't you wish you had a sadness shield You know, don't you wish you had a way to ward off all the bad things, all the wild things in life, all the things that break your heart, all the things that make you afraid or anxious, all the things that prompt your tears? Don't you wish that you had some sort of protection for all the brokenness and the pain that you and I face in this world? I mean, just think of all the noble things you could do to, for others if you had a sadness shield, right? I mean, think about how you could help and protect the ones that you love. I mean, how much do we as parents wish that we could step in and protect our children from the deep sadness that exists in this world? How much do we wish that we could guarantee a life with no tears, no sorrows, no loss, But no sadness shield exists. It only exists in children's books. It's not real. Just the other day, I peered around the corner and I listened to my four-year-old daughter who loves to play with 
play with dolls. She loves to be mommy playing with dolls. She was pretending that one of her babies died. I can't protect her from that. Oh man, I would if I could. I wish I had a sadness shield. You don't have to live very long in this world to recognize that there is nothing that you can do to escape from the sadness that exists in this world. For you, it may not be pronounced right now. Maybe you've had some in the past. Maybe you know some is coming. Maybe it's just kind of dull under the surface. The poets of this world have long recognized that sadness is part of the human condition. From the Greek tragedies to these weird modern vampire love stories, which I've only been told about. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once said, Every man has secret sorrows of which the world knows not. And oftentimes we call a man cold when yet he is just sad. I wish I could tell you that we as Christians are somehow exempt or at least shielded some from such suffering. But that's not the truth at all. That's not the story of the Bible. Though we are and should be the most joyful people in the world, and we should be, we are not immune from the profound experiences of sorrow and sadness and loss. But I would think, you know, if you were to walk into a normal church, a normal Christian church in America, you wouldn't know it, right? Because our services and our gatherings tend to be perky and happy and, and upbeat. We're really, in general, not very comfortable with dealing with sadness, whether it's on a personal level, right? Or, or corporately, as organizations or as churches, But the Bible has a great deal to say about sadness and sorrow. In many ways, the Bible is written for hurting people, and in many ways, it's been written by hurting people. Tonight, we're going to begin a series that I've been thinking about and and praying about for some time, and that's a series on lament. Lament. That is, we're going to examine the Bible together and we're going to try to determine how is it that a Christian is supposed to cry? When we hurt, what do, what do we do? Now, you may not cry, right? You might be one of those tough guys. Okay. But what do you do when you hurt? How are we, a people who hope in God, who believe these incredible things about the future and these incredible promises of the scripture, how are we who have turned away from our sin, who live with the hope of eternal life, how are we supposed to be sad? Is there a right way? And how are we to help other people when they're sad, when their hearts are breaking? The Bible has a great deal to say about sorrow. And you can't pretend it's not there, and you can't skip it. And you shouldn't skip it in your own life as well. One of the primary things that we will see as we study a few of the Psalms of Lament, and then as we wade our way into the very dark book of Lamentations, I encourage you, um, go home and read Lamentations. Maybe not in the dark, maybe in broad sunlight, right? Read Lamentations and see what is ahead of us. But we will see that the Bible offers a path for us. It offers a path for us to process our sadness in a way that is genuine and hopeful 
and I believe honoring to God. We're not going to do an exhaustive study on suffering or grief or Christian hope. We're not going to cover, you know, all those big things. But we are going to focus on how to pray when we're sad. My prayer is that we will see how God's word invites us to bring our tears, our fears, to bring our doubts and our sorrows, to bring our loss, our anxieties, into the presence of God. Not to pretend that we're okay. I'm convinced that so many of us are just used to that kind of low-grade sadness that we just kind of push it away, right? I mean, this, everybody's got problems. Everybody's dealt with hard things, right? We know that. That's how we survive. And it can lead us to stuffing or trying to ignore our sorrows. But I pray that we will be invited to bring them into the presence of the Lord and to allow him to both comfort us and even to sanctify our griefs. We can sin when we're sad, right? That's often what we do in many occasions, right? We sin when we're sad. And so we want to take those griefs to the Lord. Through the patterns of lament that are revealed in the Bible, God actually invites us to do this. God is not scared of our tears. God does not expect you to only and always sing a song that's in a major key. He understands. You see, we worship a God who became human. And we worship a God who cried. Have you thought of that? The Bible says he is well acquainted with grief. He knows your suffering. He knows the suffering that you're scared to even think about. He knows. We have a God who wipes away our tears, but we also have a God who weeps himself. And he invites us to share our tears with him. My goal tonight is, a, is quite simple because this is a little bit of a heavy, <laughs> heavy uh, subject to think about. My goal is I would like to introduce the idea of Christian lament to you and show you the basic pattern in the scripture here in Psalm chapter 77, which we've just read. And then before I do, I want to make you aware of a book. I meant to bring it. Um, uh, I forgot to bring it. Uh, but it, it's a book that has, it came out just this year that's really influenced my thinking on this subject so much that I felt like I need to mention it. It's written by a pastor uh, named Mark Vrogop. Vrogop. Uh, it's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Discovering the Grace of Lament. And I, I want to give him credit because he's really helped me with my thinking and helped connect some dots I've been thinking about on my own and it's going to shape uh, some of my ideas here and and I've done my best to make these ideas my own but I, I feel like his influence deserves credit and I commend the book to you I'll try to bring it next week but here's how I want to structure tonight first I'm going to offer some observations about the nature of sorrow in Christian life and then we'll talk about a definition of lament like what what is lament and then we'll see some basic movements, the pattern of lament in Psalm chapter 77. So let's, we've already read Psalm chapter 77. It begins verse 1 saying, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. 
In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. And in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Friends, sorrow is universal to the human experience. Sorrow is universal. It is common. It is normative. You could think of it uh, the way the old REM song put it, everybody hurts. And now you're humming that in your head, all right, and that's fine. The biblical worldview provides for us a very sturdy and comprehensive explanation for this, for hurt. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where sin entered the world. And it's important to think about this and to understand this. When God made the world, think about the rhythms and the patterns that he created with. Each day, he looked at the creation, he looked at his work for that day, and what did he say? It is good. With satisfaction, he looked on what he made and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then with man, it is very good. And in God's good world, there was no sorrow. There was no suffering. There were no psalms of lament. There were no tears. But all that changed when sin entered the world. And rather than declaring it is good, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, God says it is cursed. He speaks a word of curse into his creation. This curse brought the guarantee that is extended to you and I of worldwide pain and loss. The creation was broken. Pain enters the world, ironically, as we enter the world in childbirth, right? From the very beginning, there is pain. The pastor I just mentioned, he reflected on the fact, he reflected on the fact that babies come into the world crying. And in a sense, mom is also hurting, right? So it begins with tears. Human life on both sides begins with tears. Is there joy? Of course. Of course there is joy. Human life is not completely ruined. The entrance of pain and suffering into God's world, thankfully, did not ruin his creation, but it did certainly disfigure it significantly. God describes how sin in Genesis chapter 3, how it will disfigure human relationships. It will cause tension between man and the wife. It will produce incredible pain. Friends, just think. Think about how much pain in your life has been caused because of some sort of personal conflict. Some sort of relational problem that you've had with another person. He goes on to describe how work and labor will also be broken. Reaching all the way out to money problems and work problems. And and the work that God made to be good has become toilsome and constantly frustrated. Have you ever been frustrated with your job? (laughs) Have you ever experienced sorrow in your finances? But then the Lord concludes in verse 19. He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3.19 We come from dust, and we go to dust. 
So here's how this works. Let's just think about this for a minute. Made billions of good things for us to enjoy. Isn't that incredible? I mean, how many good things did God make? Billions. Billions and billions and billions of good things. And he made them all out of dust. But every single good thing is also being returned to dust. What is exempt? What thing do you enjoy that will last? It, 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 it was made from dust and it will return to dust. Every good, th- every good thing is bound to return to dust. So you and I, just think of it, we are living in a world of unfathomable joy and pleasure. But every single one of those pleasures is decaying. So, some of them right before our very eyes. I remember my favorite pair of hiking boots. I had them for a long time. They were sturdy and faithful. They were perfect. Took them out hiking. My whole soul fell off and I was like 10 miles from the car, right? I was like an idiot trying to tie a bandana on the bottom of my feet. They they just fell apart, right? They literally turned into dust. (laughs) Like literally, right? Every good thing in your life is breaking down. You and I experience this brokenness every day because we're in the middle of the decay. Death ruins or will ruin our best relationships. Disease steals our vitality. Wealth goes away. No prosperity is safe. Freedom is not safe. And because of this brokenness that you and I experience, we also experience loss and grief and sadness because everything is returning to dust. I think this is a good time to define loss, right? This, is, this, this series is not just for people who are grieving death. It certainly applies. But we experience loss in all sorts of ways. Loss can take on countless forms. One of the counseling organizations that trained me, CCEF, they, they define loss like this. This is helpful. Loss encompasses the heartache and pain of discovering That the good things you value, love, and enjoy are fragile, temporary, and unrecoverable. I'll read that again. This includes the heartache and pain of discovering that all the good things you value, love, and enjoy are fragile, temporary, and unrecoverable. I would extend this to say loss includes, I think, even, even a sense of sadness of missing out on good things you never had. Perhaps you never had a good relationship with your father, but you can see what you're missing out on as you look on other relationships. Loss includes a recognition that we are missing out on life as God somehow intended it to be. The human experience as God originally created it to be. We get glimpses, don't we? You get glimpses of what your marriage should be like, what your parenting should be like. You get glimpses on a beautiful day of what it's like to walk with God and exalt Him for what He has made. But those are fleeting, aren't they? There are good things that exist which we lack, and we know it. And there are good things that we have that we are losing. The author of Ecclesiastes reflected on this, and he he made this sober reflection. He said, this is Ecclesiastes 3, What happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. 
And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Sorrow is not just some dark season of our life that is ahead to be dreaded. If we are honest, we know it touches on every part of the human experience. Jesus spoke of this. He understood this. He warned us. He said, in this world you will have trouble. And then he goes on to say that he has plans for the tomorrow of sorrow. So he says, take heart because he's overcome the world with all of its suffering. Jesus speaks to his people saying, I have plans to deal with the sting of death and all that it entails. I think we sometimes forget that the redemption of Jesus Christ is utterly comprehensive. We think only in terms of heaven and hell. And it's so small compared to all that he is saving us from. Jesus did not just come to solve the problem of hell, but he came to solve the problem of pain and the problem of sorrow. That's why Revelation chapter 21, the Bible ends with this grand picture and it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There will be a day, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there will be a day where you and I will sit around and we'll talk with one another and we'll say, you remember what it was like to cry? I'll say, not really. Maybe, that day's coming. The day is coming, and that is a reality that Jesus has purchased for us. The problem is, is that you and I are living among the former things. The death, the tears, the sorrow, the pain. And so we experience sorrow. So the question that we're asking in this series is, okay, what do we do with the tears? What do we do with the tears? And the short answer tonight, right? If you're someone who gets overwhelmed with big ideas, here's the short answer. We pray them. We pray our tears. In the Bible, this is an expression that's called often lament. A lament is a word, it's a word that's used quite frequently in the Bible, but it, it, it refer, particularly in Hebrew, it refers to a loud expression of pain, right? It's, it's, a, it's a cry or even a howling, right? One example is Ezekiel 27. It says, In their wailing, they raise up a lamentations for you, and they lament over you. Who is like Tyre, the one destroyed in the midst of the sea? That word wailing, I think, is really helpful. It, lament is a wailing. It's a wailing because of grief. It's a wailing because of calamity. And the Bible is full of people. People of faith. The most righteous man in the world. Who are crying because of some sort of calamity. These are people who are people of faith and actually provide for us a pattern of lament that we as God's people can imitate. 
In fact, of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, more than 50 of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of lament. This, this should be a normal, healthy, regular part of your Christian life and for our public life as a church. Of course, there's a whole book of the Bible devoted to this. Lamentations, right? It's an extended lament. And just at face value, the fact that there are biblical prayers of lamentations, the fact that those exist, at least tell us, number one, not only do God's people experience great sorrow, but there is a particular and proper way to express that sorrow to God. This is what makes Christian lament different than the secular cry of grief and sorrow. This is what makes our cry different than the the whining you'll hear on country radio, right? We know and admit, yes, everybody cries, but not everybody laments. Everybody hurts, but not everybody laments, and that's because not everybody shares our hope. Not everyone has the hope that we have. And so that must and should affect the way we hurt. Even when we're hurting, we hope in a sovereign, powerful, merciful God who is redeeming the world. And if your belief in God does not affect the way that you hurt, we've got to ask, do you really believe in God? If you believe that there's a God who is in control of all things, that must affect the way that you're afraid and the way you struggle. Faith must make a difference. Hope must make a difference. As God's people, no matter how dark and how suffocating your pain may seem, God's truths are truer than your pain. As Christians, we believe that God is Lord over all. That he controls, that he rules, and that he has redeemed us, and that he is redeeming the world. Which means that we are able to have realistic hope in pain. And it is in this hope, in hope in a redeeming God, that it makes lament worthwhile. And it makes it reasonable. Christian lament is not just a psychological technique. It is not just a trick you read about. And it's not just crying. It's not just having a good cry. Lament is prayer. It's prayer. It is an honest expression of both pain and faith. That is one of the best ways for you to take this away. Lament is an honest expression of pain and faith. It's critical that both elements are there. If both elements aren't there, it's not lament. Okay? So we can fall off on either side. I've done this on, in, in my life in, in a variety of ways, right? On the one hand, in our sorrows, we can muster up that faith and we can pray what, what we're supposed to say, but not acknowledge that the pain is there. Which means that we're being, we're, we're not being very authentic or sincere. We're lying. We're faking it. I felt this pressure when we lost our daughter Eden late in pregnancy. Right? I was a pastor. Everybody's kind of watching. So I'm like, oh, I've got to do the right thing. <laughs> right? Got to say the right stuff. Felt that pressure. Or we could fall off on the other side. Right? We could only express our pain and not faith. But if we do that, 
then we're being functional atheists. We're pretending like God doesn't exist because he has nothing to say about our pain. He can't help me. Who cares? There's nothing but pain. But that's when we need God the most, isn't it? Lament is a prayer that has both honest pain and honest faith. And that's why it's all over the Bible. It's prayer. Especially in the Psalms. Mark Vorgrop gives this uh, description of lament, which I think is helpful. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. We're humans, and so we hurt, but we're also God's people, and so we trust. There are four movements of lament that uh, this author notices. I've seen them in a variety of different places, and, and other authors have noticed this before, and I've tweaked them to, to my language. But, but as we study many of the expressions of lament in the Bible, there's a general pattern or shape that, that begins to emerge. Not every one, not every psalm includes every dimension, and you can't always see everything like neat and tidy, but it's a really helpful way. If you want to study the Bible and then take this away, so that when you're hurting or when you're helping someone who's hurting or when you're dealing with anxiety and sadness, you can turn to the Lord. It's important to notice that that lament is really a process. It's something of, it's a journey. And I don't mean a process like grief is a process that's six months and 12 months and 36 months. I don't mean it like that. I mean, it's, it's a process that our heart goes through. It's a movement from hopelessness to trust. You might need to go through that process eight times before breakfast, right? You had days like that? And so what I'd like to spend the rest of our time doing this evening is to simply point out these four elements of lament in Psalm chapter 77. Okay, so the first one is that lament begins by number one, turning to God. In counseling, I call this bringing God into the picture, right? He's there. You might as well talk to him, right? Turning to God. This is so often the hardest part. But this is what the psalmist does right in verse 1. The very fact that Psalm 77 exists tells us that this psalmist is processing his pain before the Lord. Verse 1 says that he cries aloud to God. To God. Verse 2 gives a description of how he is stretching out his hands in prayer. That's what what that means in verse 2 part B or whatever. That that, that he he is stretched out in prayer, in the position of prayer, but he refuses to be comforted. And friends, this is huge. Because when we are in pain, I have found that so often it is hard to cry out to the Lord. And there could be, there's all sorts of reasons for this. I think the main one is just this is messy, right? I don't even know what I'm thinking or feeling right now. I just know it hurts. I, I don't know what to say. I don't, I, I don't know what to pray for. God's already said no to my prayers. Or maybe God doesn't listen, right? There, there can be doubts, all sorts of things. There might be too many unanswered questions. Perhaps you've been praying, heal, 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 restore, 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 answer this prayer, answer this prayer, and it hasn't happened. That's the only thing you know how to pray. We may not have our thoughts together enough to pray. Have you ever felt that? I need to pray. I don't know what to say. 
But praying is always better than silence. Praying is always better than ignoring God or giving him the silent treatment. And that's because prayer itself is an act of faith. It is an act of faith. It is an act of humility. Just think of all that prayer assumes and how this can be helpful to someone who is hurting. Prayer assumes there is a God. I might be hurting right now. I might be hurting more than I ever imagined. I might not have any clue how I'm going to get through tomorrow. But God exists. I'm praying right now because I know that he cares about me. I can't see it. It's hard to believe it, but I know that he does, and so I'm going to turn to him. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why he didn't answer my prayers. I don't know why he hasn't taken away the pain, but this I know. God is there. And when we are hurting, perhaps the greatest temptation that we will face is unbelief. The temptation to not believe. Maybe not that God exists, but the temptation is going to be that we will struggle to believe that God's words are true. Right? Those words not, may not mean much. Um, my sister Carrie just lost her uh, one-day-old baby. Um, as children growing up, we would sing the song, God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. You heard that song? He answers prayers. He answers prayers. He answers prayers. He's so good to me. And Carrie and Jamin were making an effort. They wanted to do everything for their child that they could in the hour and 45 minutes that they had her alive and, and while she was in the womb. So they read children's books to her. They sang to her. And when Elizabeth was born, my sister Carrie holding her sang, God is so good. God is so good. And Elizabeth died in her arms while Carrie was singing, God is so good. And then at the graveside, Carrie began to sing, God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Right? It's one thing to say, God is so good when your baby is healthy. It's another thing to say, God is so good when your baby has died. It is hard to believe that God is who he says he is when you're hurting. Isn't it? Unbelief is the work of the devil. By turning to God, we are acknowledging that he exists. And lament begins when we turn to him. When we acknowledge that one, our pain is real, but number two, God is real. So many Christians live as if only their pain was real and forget about God. So let's not give God the silent treatment in our sorrow. Turn to him. Pray. Uh, movement number two, speak your heart. Speak your heart. Verses two and four and really all throughout the psalm, the psalmist is just unloading his heart on God. Vorgop calls this complain. I like that word. Complain. Complain to God. I'm fine with that word, but I want to broaden it some to say that we need to speak our heart, all of it, not just the churchy parts and not just the negative parts, right? Look at verse 4. The psalmist says, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Well, he spoke 20 verses, I mean, but, but we know what he's saying, right? Have, have you been there? 
so troubled he could not speak. There's no sugarcoating here. Verse 2, he already said, my soul refuses to be comforted. Whatever is true about whatever, my heart is broken. He even tells God in verse 3 how hard it is to pray. He says, this is incredible, when I think of God, I just moan. When I try to think about God, my spirit gives out. When I meditate, verse 3, my spirit faints. So, so the psalmist is saying that he, he, he tries to pray and his spirit just gives out. Friends, this is honest prayer. One of my favorite definitions of prayer comes from the New City Catechism. It's, it's questions and answers that my kids are memorizing about theology. And dad tends to learn a lot from the kids' questions, right? Um, and one of the questions is, what is prayer? And the answer, if you ask Karis and Addie this, I think they can tell you. They'll say, prayer is pouring out your heart to God. Isn't that a good definition? You know where they get it from? Psalm 62, which literally says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge. Guys, I'm convinced that for so many of us, our praying is so miserable and so boring because we are just faking it. You know what I mean? Right? I'm serious. Just imagine if you talk to your spouse like you talk to God. Hey, beautiful spouse. I just wanted to say thank you for the dinner, beautiful spouse. And what pretty wallpaper this is, beautiful spouse. Would you please do the laundry, beautiful spouse? And please trim the hedge of protection in front of my yard. See what I did there? Most beautiful, wonderful spouse, right? We just like fill in fillers because we don't know what to say. You just kind of, you hear how impersonal that is. My goodness, I'm bored just reading that. No wonder we don't have a prayer life, right? No wonder. You see, the problem is, is that when the only praying that you and I do is at the dinner table or in Sunday school, that when it, we get into the rut of just faking it with God. And so we don't even know how to pray honest prayers. And so when you're really hurting, you're just like trying to spew out whatever it is you heard your Sunday school teacher say. You're like talking about the hedge of protection all the time. What is a hedge of protection? Have you ever been protected by a hedge? Has anyone ever wondered about this besides me? Whatever, right? God doesn't want you to fake it. The Bible literally warns us about praying with lots of words, right? God wants your heart he already knows it. He already, God already knows that you're a mess, right? You know this, right? You, you, other people may not know you're a mess. God knows you're a mess. You might as well just admit it, right? It's not like you're fooling him, right? Just tell him. Tell him you're struggling to trust him. Why don't you just tell him about it? Friends, for me, one of the most significant things I ever learned about prayer is that I can just tell God the truth. I'm serious. I've told the guys this in Bible study a lot. A lot of times my prayer begins like this. Dear God, I don't really want to pray right now. Please help me want to pray. Right? I mean, well, I could like put a bunch of these and thous and hedges of protections here and there. And, you know, and, yeah. what, what, don't you think God just wants my heart? Prayer is pouring out your heart to God. Tell him what's wrong. Ask him to change it. Tell him you want him to fix it. Beg for him to restore your marriage. Beg for him to heal your child. Beg for him to give you that new job. Tell him what you want. Tell the truth. But don't stop there. Don't end there. 
There's another movement. Number three, ask your questions. Verses 7 and 9 are full of almost offensive questions, right? Theologically, it's weird. They're, they're basically questions of unbelief. The psalmist is saying, where are you, God? It sure seems like you've stopped loving me. You ever felt like that? We don't say that. You felt like that? It seems like you've forgotten about grace. You see that verse 9? I thought you answered prayers. Friends, prayer is the best venue for us to process our honest questions and doubts before the Lord. If you have questions for God that you're afraid to ask him, you're not going to pray. Might as well ask him. Tell him. But don't stop there. This is a safe place for the psalmist to wonder in verse 9, is God angry with me? Have you wondered that? We'll talk much more about this in the future. This is not an excuse to sin. It's not an excuse to, to charge God with wrong. You can't say whatever you want. But if the sin's already in your heart, you might as well talk to God about it. And get it out in the open and let him purify it. Prayer is a place, a lament prayer is a place to honestly expose and process what is already happening in your heart. Get it out in the open. But don't end there. Don't end with questions and doubts. You have to make the turn. I call this the turn. You've got to make the, the shift. Verses 10 and 11 represent a significant turning point in the psalm. The psalmist begins to talk to himself. He turns away from his pain, away from his complaints, away from his doubts, to the rock-solid character of God and of who he is. He chooses to trust. And that's the, final, that's the fourth movement. Trust your God. Trust your God. Lament begins by acknowledging, I'm hurting, but oh yeah, there's a God. And, but it ends with, I'm hurting, God is holy, and I will trust him. I'm hurting, but your way, oh God, is holy. I'm hurting, but what God is a God, a great God like our God, verse 13. I'm hurting, but you are the God who works wonders. An ending in faith. Lament ends by looking upon the beauty and the character of God and saying, hey, I don't understand what all's happening here. I've told you the truth, but I trust you. But I trust you. I choose to trust you. We'll talk about this much more in the future, but I just want to whet your appetite for it tonight. Verse 16 and following speaks of the Exodus event. And whenever you see anything about the Exodus in the Bible, you need to be thinking salvation, right? You see this in verse 16 where God piled up the waters of the Red Sea in a heap. Man, that's cool, right? Piled them up in a heap so that he could redeem his people out of slavery, out of the darkness and the death that they were under. The New Testament teaches us that the little Exodus was just a small taste of the big Exodus, that would come in Jesus Christ. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, God has accomplished a far greater exodus. When he redeemed his people out of our slavery to sin, and our slavery to death, and our slavery to sadness. What was the passage in Luke where it says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah said, we're in the shadow of death. Are we not? 
I love how even verses 17 and 18, they, there's familiarity with thunder and, and, and earthquakes, right? It makes me think even then of the crucifixion. But I love how the gospel primer puts it. This is looking ahead to the gospel, right? It's looking ahead to the gospel. And the gospel primer says that the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which we live and move. Isn't that great? No matter what your sorrows are, no matter how big and significant they are, they are temporary. The gospel is the one great permanent circumstance. And here the Exodus reminds us of that. When you look to God and his character, you look to a God who has redeemed you. You are possessed by him. And so no matter what sorrow and loss you face, you are possessed by a God who, according to Romans chapter 8, did not even spare his own son. But he gave him up for us all. And so if he did that, is he not going to also with him graciously give us all that we need? What a glorious truth. Lift your eyes and choose to trust him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to deal honestly with our griefs, honestly with our pain, and take them to you and process them before you. I pray for those who are here tonight that are hurting, that you would give them the ability to do this, to practice this, because we know that you are patient. Even with a bruised reed, you will not break, or a smoldering flax, you will not extinguish. We thank you for this, O God. We give you praise. Help us as we go. In your name, amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.